That's Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labour in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Well, thank you, Ben. And we're going to turn to God's word now, see what it has to say for us. And so let's pray for his help. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we pray that it would come to life for us by the power of your Holy Spirit this evening. In Jesus name. Amen. Now I'm going to show you a couple of pictures. These are two groups of people. And I want you to tell me, well, think in your mind. You can put it on the live chat if you want. Which of these two groups would you like to be part of? There's group number one. There's group number two. I think the answer is probably fairly obvious. What they're supposed to represent is uh, group number one here. I've actually uh, got them arguing and complaining. They're pretty angry. Group number two here, obviously very happy, probably on the beach somewhere. Now, if uh, if you like mute pop music from 2017, then uh, actually you might prefer to be in the angry and grumpy group because uh, I found this. This is Sound of 2017 and nobody looks particularly happy for some reason. But obviously we would all want to be part of the happy group. And those two pictures illustrate two groups of people that come out from our text this evening. It's two options for God's people, if you like. And we can be in option A, the angry group, or option B, the happy group. Now, the first group there, we can, you know, we can forget how great our salvation is and we can obey Christ grudgingly, just going through the motions. And we can complain that the sermon wasn't very exciting and the music didn't really move me and there were some technical issues and the church makes so much demand on my time and all this sort of thing with the result that we will seem very unattractive and unappealing to anyone outside the group. Or alternatively, that second group, we can remember just how amazing our salvation is. We can submit to Jesus with an attitude almost of disbelief that he loves us. And we can enjoy every moment he gives us, even when we're flat, we're tired or we're annoyed. And the result of that is that people from the outside looking into the church will see the group and think, I would love to be part of that. It will seem very appealing. To put it more simply, I've got to grumble or not to grumble. 
That is the question. I get that, that from verse 14 of our text. Do everything without grumbling. Now, I want to admit that I actually found it really difficult preparing this sermon. It was a real challenge because I am as guilty of grumbling as anybody I know. I'm a first class grumbler. And we've also got to remember the elephant in the room with uh, grumbling, which is that it's not my fault. If it was my fault, I wouldn't be grumbling. Obviously, somebody else has a problem, and that's what I'm grumbling about. So we can talk ourselves into thinking that all of our grumbling, it's not our fault, it's the people's fault who are causing us these problems. So someone else may be in the wrong. Of course, the church leaders aren't perfect, the congregation aren't perfect. We'll wind each other up, we'll make mistakes, we'll deny that we've done anything wrong, we'll miscommunicate, all of these things that cause grumbling. And there are places in the Bible that deal with somebody who is in the wrong. But this bit that we're looking at this evening doesn't deal with that. Instead, it deals with, if you like, the person who has been wronged. And it says, do everything without grumbling. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, massive sins against people here. I'm talking about smaller things that we grumble about. You know what I mean? Okay, now when Paul uses the word grumbling, it's supposed to remind us of someone. It's supposed to remind us of the ancient Israelites in the wilderness after they were rescued from Egypt. So Exodus 16, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. That was in the desert, Leviticus, uh, sorry, Numbers 14, when they were coming out of the desert, all the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly said to them, if only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. So this text leads us to imagine these two groups. On the one hand, you've got the ancient Israelites journeying through the wilderness. They're grumblers. They don't care that they've just been freed from slavery. They'd rather be back there or dead. And just everything about this group seems to be a nuisance to them. They have a lot of things to grumble about. The other group is the Holy Spirit's vision for what the Christian church should be, communicated to us through Paul in this letter to the Philippians. No grumbling, but lots of good things. So I wanna talk about grumbling a little bit more, and then I'm gonna come on to two better things that uh, we can get from our text. Grumbling then. So when I'm talking about grumbling, as I said before, I'm not talking about the pain you might feel uh, when you're the victim of a serious sin against you. I know that there is pain that people experience through that, maybe even a problem in life, like losing a job. Um, the Bible has things to say about that, but particularly here, we're talking about those minor issues that cause us to grumble. And here's one challenge and one encouragement to help us overcome grumbling. And they're both really two sides of the same coin. There's a lot of groups of two in this sermon. I hope that's not too confusing. So firstly, the challenge. And the, when I was at Oak Hill, there was a Jewish man uh, who was a Messianic Jew. He believed that Christ was the Messiah. Jesus was the Messiah. And he came in to take us through the traditional celebration of the Jewish Passover. And as part of that, they take an onion. This is an onion. It's a very small onion. And they say this onion represents bitterness. 
And do you know what they do with that onion? They, they're remembering lessons from the past, really, from the ancient Israelites in the wilderness. They say this onion represents bitterness. And what they do is they take it and they throw it as far away from there as they can. I've just knocked something off the kitchen shelf. But the teaching they want to draw from that is that bitterness has no place in the redeemed people of God. I find that really challenging. I read this morning, sorry, uh, earlier this evening, I read about all of the great things God has done for us, and yet we still manage to grumble. Bitterness has no place in the redeemed people of God. But the other side of the coin, the encouragement, is this. God's salvation is so complete that even the things we grumble about are in some way working for our good. Romans 8.28 In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Sometimes it's easier to remember that verse in the bigger problems of life than it is to remember it in the smaller gripes that we have about relatively trivial things. Even in those, God works for our good. Billy Graham said, grumbling and gratitude are for the child of God in conflict. Be grateful and you won't grumble. Grumble and you won't be grateful. Now, we are to live grateful lives, being thankful in every situation. And I know that Christians have often been stereotyped um, because of this. You got here, Ned Flanders, just reminding you to be a good neighborino. Bit sickly sweet, the vicar from Dad's Army and uh, the verger there, a little bit similar. They're a bit sickly sweet because they're always grateful. Well, not the vicar in Dad's Army, actually, but Ned Flanders, certainly always grateful, very sickly sweet. But we don't have to be like that and we don't have to be naive about it. But we do have to be grateful. So do everything without grumbling. We've covered those four words of our text. So what does the rest of it say? And what I want to look at now is the better way, the way the ancient Israelites forgot. And the first is uh, in verses 12 and 13, working out or living out salvation. Verse 12, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Well, fear and trembling, that doesn't sound much better, but it's about being changed. I uh, went to see the Puy de Fou in France and uh, brace yourselves. This is a picture from the Puy de Fou. Look at that. Can't say it, but uh, extremely impressive. And... I was probably only about 12 when I saw it, or that kind of age. And at the end of the show, they shoot lasers over your head. And honestly, I was so blown away from it that I think I couldn't breathe for the next 10 seconds. My heart was in my mouth, my knees were a bit shaky. And I was probably quite changed from that experience. I haven't stopped talking about it today. And I certainly haven't stopped talking about it uh, a few years after it. It was absolutely mind blowing. This is just the end of the show here. Quite extraordinary if you get to go and see it. 
And this is what fear and trembling is talking about. It's that kind of awe where we look at something and then afterwards we think, did that just happen? And was I part of that? God has just brought about this amazing salvation and our hearts should be in our mouths. We should, our knees should be shaking a little bit and we think, did that just really happen to me? As a church, we want people to see that our encounter with God has changed us. And I hope it has, I know it has. Uh, Paul Washer is a preacher in the United States, uh, quite controversial in some circles, but he has a great illustration where he says, if I turned up to church one day wearing my tie and button all done up and I was looking really sharp, and I said, on the way here, I was walking down the street and I got hit full on by a truck doing 100 miles an hour. <laughs> You'd probably say to him, that's not true. You're, that didn't happen. You're lying. Because it's impossible to have an experience like that and not be changed. And so Washer says, it's impossible to have an experience with God and not be changed. We need that to be evident in our lives. And the kind of change it brings about is obedience or working out our salvation. This is, we'll come back to what it means, but working out our salvation, obedience, which again doesn't sound very exciting in the abstract, in the same way that it doesn't sound very exciting if I say, congratulations, you have got your place in your first choice of university. Now you can attend lectures from 10 till 12 and then later you can sit in silence in the library while you read 50,000 words. And in that time, you've also got to write 2,000 words. Okay, that's not very exciting either, but that is effectively what a student does. But the word, the word obedience instantly sounds boring and stuffy, okay? But obedience for us is just working out our salvation. Or in other words, you've just got your place at the uni that you wanted to go to. Now go and enjoy the student life. That is actually what obedience is. Far more exciting than we often make it seem. Now I want to just dip into some theology for those of you who know your Bibles well, because it's possible to misunderstand this verse. There's actually just one word that is translated, continue to work out your salvation. <laughs> That's just one word, and it, that one word can mean accomplish or finish your salvation. So. It's as if you haven't quite made it yet. Jesus has started the work, but now you have to finish it. So they miss the main point of Christianity, which is that God did what we could not do. And he saved us completely. Something we can never accomplish ourselves. And the key is in what Paul means by salvation. Because don't forget that Paul is writing to people who are already Christians. And as Christians, we can say that they have already been justified by faith. There's nothing more to add. But salvation includes more than just justification. At the very least, it includes justification, sanctification, and glorification. Sanctification being where we become more like Christ throughout our lives. Glorification, where we finally meet God and we are perfect forever. And so we can say that the bit of salvation that we are accomplishing here is our sanctification. We can't achieve our justification or our glorification. God needs to do those things. Paul says, 
work on your sanctification. But even then, he says, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So the long and short of it is that you must live out your salvation. You must obey. And if uh, not, then maybe you haven't experienced that salvation. But when you do live it out, when you do obey, you can say, actually, it was God that gave me the desire to do this. And it was God that enabled me to do it all along. It's God's work from start to finish. But there's that strange tension, isn't there, where we can't just sit back and do nothing. We have to obey. And yet it is God working in us that enables us to obey. Okay, the other better way of doing things. So that's the first way It's living out this salvation. Obedience sounds stuffy, but it's far more than that. It's living the life that we were called to. And this is the other thing that the ancient Israelites forgot very quickly. Paul says, verse 18, be glad and rejoice with me. If the opposite of grumbling is gratitude, Paul says, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, if there is an illustration that is completely lost on, on us in the 21st century, it's that one. But basically think of Paul pouring himself out as in emptying himself. He's got nothing left of himself. He's just given himself up in self-sacrifice for these people. He could be bitter about that, but he isn't. He says, even if I'm being poured out, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. And I want to show you why being grateful is far more than being sickly sweet or a bit naive. It's actually something that's incredibly appealing to people outside the church looking in. Let's go back to our two journeying groups. We've got Israel and the church and compare them one last time. Listen to the criticism Moses levels at the ancient Israelites, the grumpy group, if you like. This is in Deuteronomy 32. They are corrupt and not his children. In other words, not God's children. To their shame, they are a warped and crooked generation. Is this the way you repay the Lord, you foolish and unwise people? Seems harsh, but they've just been set free from slavery and all they can do is grumble. So they're described as a warped and crooked generation, which the eagle-eyed among you will recognize from our text. Which brings us on to God's people today, the church, in verse 14 of our text. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. I'm translating a bit more literally here. Amongst whom you shine like stars in the sky. It's important we don't just jump on those words, warped and crooked generation, and say, yes, look how warped and crooked everyone is around us, amongst whom we shine like stars, because that's totally missing the point. And that's what the Pharisees thought, of course, and that's uh, the Pharisees are the group for whom Jesus reserved his harshest criticism. No, the point is that God's ancient people themselves were described as a warped and crooked generation, but in this letter, people who had no Jewish descent and hence no claim on God as saviour, receive the title 
children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And what this is telling us is that this is a second chance. This is, if you like, the new beginning. This is God's people mark two, if you like. And we're to learn lessons from those who grumbled in the wilderness. And this is how we end up worshiping God today, because when we were far away from God and his promises, he came near to us and drew close to himself. So the challenge to us is to live with that in mind, to always be grateful for what God has done so that people looking into the church from outside see us and think, I really want to be part of that because I can see that God has done amazing things for them. Let me close in prayer. Father in heaven, we confess that we do grumble far too much and we do so easily forget the salvation that you have brought about. And we thank you, Lord, for, uh, if we want to call it this, this second chance that your people have, this new beginning. Thank you, Lord, that we can learn lessons from the past. Thank you that we can be called children of God and blameless when we're really so far from being near to any of those things. So please keep us thankful. Please keep grumbling far away from us and bitterness far away from us. And please may that be such an appeal to people looking into the church. May they really see that you are among us and may they want to join us. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.